St. James. I'm glad that you guys are here. It's very, very good to see all of you. Um, we are aware that there is no video as of right now on the live stream, and um, don't text Larry and ask where the video is at. It's not there, and uh, we're working on it. Uh, and just enjoy being able to listen to this and not have to look at it. So that's because. Speaking of uh, audio stuff, um, we, I've been having fun the past month or so with. Um, Larry, who is a longtime sound engineer, for those of you who know him, uh, Chuck Rathert, a longtime host on KFUO. We have, the three of us, have been uh, making podcast episodes, uh, which are now, uh, uh, now available. I, I heard this morning somebody saw it on uh, Spotify. It's on iTunes as well. It's called uh, Craving Answers, Craving God, and it's about uh, questions about God, and it's focused, it's geared towards of people who want to know more, people who, they're either, you know, if you're not a believer, but you're thinking about Christianity, if you are a Christian, but you've always wondered why do we, why do we think that about certain things, it's geared towards that, so uh, check it out, it's on, uh, it's on most of the major podcast platforms, and it's slowly but surely going up on the others, it's called Craving Answers, Craving God, so that's been kind of fun for us, and um, so there's that. Uh, other announcements, uh, you can check out the bulletin for uh, Mercy Ministry stuff. Don't forget the Operation Christmas Box uh, ministry. Uh, grab one on your way out today. See Stacy if you have any questions. Youth confirmation begins today at 11.30. Uh, so if you have any uh, kids or know of any kids who'd be interested in being a part of that, uh, that's going to be a good time. What that means, though, for those of you who do the Zoom Bible study, which you should have gotten an invitation already this morning, that's going to be moved till 12.30 and I realize that that might make it unworkable for some of you, and I understand, and I apologize for it, but 12.30 will be the Zoom Bible study. We're reading through the book of Titus right now. Uh, what else? Adult confirmation tonight. I should say new members class. Uh, anybody who wants to come and be involved in that is more than welcome. I actually know there's going to be a couple families who are already members who are there to hang out and eat donuts with us. So let me know if you want to be involved. I mean, you don't have to let me know, but if you let me know, I'll be able to print you up a study guide beforehand. So that should be fun. All right, I think that's uh, all I was going to say too. Uh, I, I'm not sure about the exact date, but Matt Hainer from CCLS will be with us in a few weeks to at 11.30 give us more information about their proposal for the micro school project. So more on that later as well. Okay, uh, I think that's it. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. 
we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Romans chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. I love about Psalm 46, I love that it's this description of God and his power and his care for us. And then right there near the end of the psalm is just God breaks in speaking and just says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I love that just one verse, God's voice drives in there, like right in the middle of our worship of him. I love that. Anyway, uh, Isaiah 40, let me give you a little bit of an outline of what's going on in Isaiah 40. So, um, it's going to start off with a description of idolatry and how idolatry is foolish. He's a little bit sarcastic here, not as much as he will be in Isaiah 44, by the way, but he's going to be a little bit sarcastic about idolatry. You're basically going, going and buying something with your own money and then worshiping it. How much sense does that make? Then a description of God and his character, especially his power and his sovereignty and something appropriate for election week, which that was not intentional uh, when, this, when I put this in here is God being sovereign over the rulers of the world too and being able to use them for his will and then puff and blow them away when he's done with them and that he is so mighty and powerful but at the very end of Isaiah 40, he uses that power to bless and preserve and keep those who wait for him. Okay, Isaiah 40. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast for it silver chains. He was too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. If you're too poor to buy precious metals, you can get, get some wood, get yourself some nice wood to make an idol. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing 
and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 8th chapter. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We're offspring of Abraham, never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
Epistle reading is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, uh, Cephas is Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves, he's still talking to Peter here, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so uh, uh, Reformation Day was yesterday, so uh, I thought we would look at one of the key texts, probably the oldest text, and one of the first times Paul on paper addresses the question of justification by faith. I, I didn't want to read all of chapters one and two, it's so long. But we, well, we jumped in right in the middle of the story. I mean, you saw the, the first part of our reading was, but when Peter came to Antioch. So there's actually something going on before that. And so I have to set this up a little bit. What's happening is this. There has been a huge council in Jerusalem with all of the leaders of the Christian church. Uh, you can read about that in Acts chapter 15. Paul also describes it in the first part of Galatians 2. And what happened was, is um, prior to Acts 15, it's... This momentous event has happened that's kind of been a shock to the church's cultural system. And that is, much to their surprise, Gentile Christians have started coming in to believe in Jesus. Gentiles have started coming in to believe in uh, Jesus. And so, I mean, Paul, Peter's right on, the, he's right on the cutting edge of this. In, in Acts chapter 10, God tells him, I want you to go. There's this non-Jew, this Gentile, he's actually a Roman centurion. I want you to go and I want you to preach the gospel to him. And Peter's like, nope, I, I, you know I can't do that, God. That's, I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't be in contact with unclean Gentiles. And God sends him this uh, really weird vision, remember with the sheet and the dropping the unclean food, basically says, if I call somebody clean, you have no right to call them unclean. And Peter's like, I don't know about this. I don't, I, I don't, I don't normally hang out with these people, but if God tells me to do it, I'll do it. So he goes and meets with this guy. He goes to his house. And Peter, you know, being very, extremely tactful, says to the guy right off the bat, he says, look, I don't usually hang out with people like you. So I don't know if that's the first thing you want to say when you're evangelizing somebody. But Peter says it to him, I, I don't, this is really weird for me to even be in the same room with a Gentile. But God told me to do this. And much to Peter's surprise, after he preaches the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and the other Gentiles, and they begin showing the gifts of the Spirit. And Peter's like, I don't know what to do with this. So Peter goes, he goes to Jerusalem, and there's this big council, and Peter basically says, look, guys, I'm telling you, I preached to them. 
They believed in Jesus. They had the gifts of the Spirit too. I don't know what, you know, what, what do we want to do with this? They had this massive meeting where James, uh, James uh, the, the apostle, says basically, you know what, guys? The book of Amos says that when the last days are upon us, that the Gentiles are going to start coming in. Maybe that's this. And so they have this decision where they tell, they tell Paul, you go, you preach to the Gentiles, and they don't have to do anything to become believers in Jesus. They don't have to become Jews. They don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to observe kosher laws. They don't have to uh, you know, observe the Sabbath day. Just tell them that they need to believe in Jesus and, as Paul says here, and also uh, care for the poor. Peter is going to go to uh, the Jewish Jewish Christians and minister to them and, um, and evangelize uh, Jewish non-believers too. However, they all are meeting together in Antioch, which is north of Judea. And uh, Peter and Paul are both there and everything is going swimmingly. Acts 15. All the Jews and the Gentiles are kind of meeting together and they're being, their meeting is one. And then some people come up from the church at Jerusalem and this is where our story jumps in, in, in here. Peter starts to back off eating with eating with the uh, Gentile Christians. And he starts only eating with the Jewish Christians. And Paul calls him on it. Why, why is this such a big deal? Well, let me just tell you, look, I've said this before. In the ancient world, meals were extremely intimate. You did not just eat with anybody. You only, met, you only ate with close family, people super close to you. Very, very intimate. On top of that, for Jews, it was even more of a tight communal thing. Because a Jewish meal was an exercise in worship of God. Jewish meals were always preceded with a blessing, which, uh, you know, if you've ever seen a Fiddler on the Roof, there's a meal there that proceeds with this blessing and song. And basically the blessing is, we are God's people here. We're blessing this food. May the very nature of God be communicated to us in the eating of this food together in our time together. So obviously Gentiles aren't participating in that blessing because they're outside of God's people. On top of that, you're eating kosher food. You know, this is not, just, this is not primarily for dietary reasons. The kosher food is, is, is an exercise. It's a religious exercise in itself. As the food sits there on the table, as you pick it up and eat it and ingest it, you are confessing that we are different than the people who don't eat kosher. We are God's people and we are holy to him. So what Peter is doing, he's not being a mean girl. Peter's not just saying, this is not like a junior high cafeteria thing. Peter's not like, oh, I'm not hanging out with them. They're not the cool people. And Paul's not like, Paul is not saying, hey, you know, Peter, that just ain't nice, man. You need to, you need to treat everybody the same. What, what Paul says here in our text, I think in verse 14, he says, they were not walking in step with the gospel. It's actually a gospel issue. Because the, the reason why is, it's not, not about niceness or meanness. The reason why is, is that Peter is saying, I think if you ask Peter, he'd probably say, they're Christians, but basically by his actions, he's saying, they're not on the end. They aren't holy. They are less of God's people than me and my Jewish Christian friends. That's an attack on the gospel. How does Paul attack it? Paul attacks it with justification by faith. Now, I want you to hang with me because a lot of you, especially those of you who grew up in Protestant churches, you're like, okay, justification by faith. Well, this is like confirmation 101. I know what you're gonna say. This is a good time to, uh, you know, uh, check out a little bit, which maybe it is. I don't know. But try to pay attention because I, as I was studying this this week, I, several times I was like, oh, that's pretty fresh. That's pretty new. I, I like the way that Paul angles it here in this text. 
So tr try and hang with me, even though I just said one of the code words, which clues most of, most of us in, justification by faith, that it's time to take a nap. Okay, let's do two things. Talk about what, what is justification by faith here? Why is Paul bringing it up here? What, is, what, what, what does that have to do with table fellowship? And then what does justification by faith in Jesus Christ look like in our existence as Christians? Not in our belief system, but that'll be step two. What does it look like in our existence, okay? All right, so what is justification by faith? You gotta go to verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now I'm gonna read this verse one more time, and I'm gonna read it with a little bit of different translation, because many, many New Testament scholars are, are starting to translate it the way I'm about to read it now, although it has not yet made it down to street level with our translations that we have in paper form, like the ESV. So it's a little bit different. And I'm, I'm just, uh, I, just hang with me. I'm going to tell you a little bit what the, what the Greek is saying here. So verse 16 says this, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through, now it says here in the ESV, it says through faith in Christ Jesus, through faith in Jesus Christ. Actually in Greek, that word in is not there. And what it actually says in Greek is, uh, we've all, uh, uh, we're not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It's not talking about our faith in Jesus Christ. It's talking about Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus' faithfulness. Same thing with the uh, two, two lines down. Look down uh, at, um, we also believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law. So what you have here is, you have two slices of bread here. That it doesn't say the faith in Christ Jesus, it says the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. And in the middle here, this, this line here in the middle, look at verse 16 again. Uh, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus. That actually has the word in in there. And it's talking about us. So we have believed in Christ Jesus. So here it is. We're justified by the faithfulness of Christ. So we believe in Christ Jesus because we've been justified by the faithfulness of Christ. The emphasis in this verse if you read it the way the ESV has it translated, is on our faith in Christ. In fact, it says it three times in a row, which is a little bit strange. Actually, the emphasis in Greek is on mainly Christ's faithfulness. Not what Christ believes, but Christ's loyalty and commitment to the covenant. Christ's faithfulness to who God called him to be. Christ's faithfulness to the way humans were designed to be. When God made Adam and Eve, he had a certain plan for the way they would act, the way they would exist in his world, the way they would take care of his creation. The only person who's ever been faithful to that, Paul is implying here, is Jesus. He's the only person who, was ever, who ever looked like God wanted a human being to look, whoever acted like God wanted a human being to act. Now, sandwiched in the middle of that is us. How do we connect with that? We believe in Jesus. So I, this is, you guys all believe this anyway. I just wanted to point it out to you, actually, from the Greek in this text that when we talk about justification by faith, the first thing that you have to mean is justification by God's faithfulness to us. Justification by Jesus' faithfulness to his Father and to the covenant. It starts with God's faithfulness. Then a secondary outworking is we believe, our faithfulness. The word for believe here is actually the sex thing. It's a verb form of the word for faith. Right? Because Jesus was faithful to the covenant, we can believe in him. Okay, so, so what does this have to do with table fellowship? <laughs> like, what is this? People aren't eating with other people, and now 
Paul's going to drop Lutheranism 101 on Peter. What's the connection there? Well, let's do this real quick here. Let's uh, talk about the story of Luther just real briefly. Luther grabbed onto this principle, saved his life, basically. I don't just mean like he's going to heaven when he dies. I mean like it, it, may be if, it may be saved him from insanity. This realization that God justifies us with his faithfulness, that we don't justify ourselves with anything that we do. Luther grabbed onto that biblical principle. And with, uh, with any biblical principle, once you have it, what you have to do next is you have to apply it to your life and to the context. And the context that Luther was living in was medieval Roman Catholicism. The notion that, I mean, Luther, I mean, for those of you who know his story, he worked really, really hard to be a good boy, to be pleasing to God. I mean, I know there's indulgences there and stuff like that. But basically, like, if you do good deeds, God will be happy with you. And if you don't, you have to do penance to make up for them. And there's other things too. You can buy indulgences and stuff like that. But basically, you have to do good deeds to be pleasing to God. Luther attacks it. With, that, with this principle here, justification by faith alone. Now, most of you know this. Not, not all of you, maybe most of you know this. Now, here's a problem in 2020. Pay attention to this. Nobody in our culture or in this room right now, and when I say nobody, like any teacher, like, I mean 95% of the time, right? Nobody, nobody believes that you can be pleasing to God by doing good deeds. If I ask my students at Lewis and Clark, how do you get right with God? They will say, I don't know what you mean by God, and I don't know what you mean by get right with. That's what they'll say. And if I say, well, if you do enough good deeds, God will like you or be happy with you. They would say, I don't know if I believe in that God stuff. Maybe I do. Even the Christians will tell this to me. I've got lots of papers from Christian kids which basically say, I'm a Christian, my family's a Christian, I grew up a Christian, I go to church a lot. I don't really know for sure if it's true or if I'm gonna be believing this you know, five years from now, but it's kind of where I'm at in my life journey right now, something like that. And as far as like doing good things to be right with God, nobody, like, what's the connection they might say? Or what do you mean by good things? What does good mean? That's another question in our culture. Also, that's not just out there, by the way, that's in here. How many of you, don't raise your hands, how many, how many of you, have heard your fill of Christian sermons from Protestant pul pulpits where the, the pastor was saying, you can't be saved by your good deeds. And you're like, yeah, I know that. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to be saved by, I, I already know I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to save me. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to be saved by my good deeds. Well, you know what the problem is, is we've taken this biblical principle, justification by faith, but we're still harping on Luther's application for his context. And in our context, nobody's trying to justify themselves to God by good deeds. And I say nobody. I know that some people, are, there's still some people, mainly an older generation, who would still say, I think on the last day, God weighs up the good things you do and the bad things, and if the good things outweigh the bad. But hardly anybody else believes that, and certainly probably not anybody in this room right now. I'm getting around to why Paul would bring this up about table fellowship. And it goes like this. What's Peter's issue? Paul is accusing Peter of self-justification. You are not allowed to justify yourself. You have to be justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. What's Peter's issue? It's not that he's mean. It's that Peter's identity should be in Christ. It should be, I belong to God through Jesus Christ. But it's not that strong right now. Actually, what may be a little bit more important to him is his identity as an ethnic Jew. He gets his value and his purpose and his meaning 
from his Jewishness and his Jewish purity, more so than he does through his relationship with Jesus. And it pops its ugly head up when Christians who aren't Jewish come up and he chooses to abandon them to be with Jews. Does that make sense? When Peter looks in the mirror, at least on this morning, not always, but on this morning when Peter looks in the mirror, he sees primarily you're okay because you're Jewish, more so than you're okay because you belong to God in Jesus Christ. That's why this is a gospel issue. That's how the principles of justification by faith match up with this moment here in Peter's life. It calls him to, it calls him to confront the fact that he gets value and meaning and purpose out of his Jewishness and not out of, I belong to God in Jesus Christ. So now the question for us is, so, I mean, so what Paul is saying is this, is that, Peter, that's gonna let you down. You know, we'll talk a little bit of this in a second. You know that through the law, you're just gonna die. If you keep on playing this, but what, what, what Paul means by works of the law here are not good deeds. What he means are like Jewish, what the context here is table fellowship, circumcision in Galatians 3 is gonna go to circumcision. It's like Jewish separation laws. He says, Peter, you can't live that. We tore that down. Don't try to build that up again, he says like in verse 17 or 18. Don't try to build that up again. It's just gonna kill you. Okay, what does this have to, what, his message is this. Your real meaning and purpose and ultimate infinite satisfaction will be not in trying to justify yourself, your ethnicity or your deeds or whatever, but accepting justification from God. What does it have to do with us? That's what justification is by faith. How are you and I gonna experience that? All right. Well, I don't really, I don't ever try to justify myself through my good deeds. I'm way too, way too introspective. I already know that I'm like a steaming hot mess of unrighteousness. I don't ever try and, I honestly don't ever think, oh, God likes me because I'm a good boy. I know way too much about myself. However, I do get my value and worth, not from my good deeds or from, you know, my separation laws that I follow, but from other things. And in our culture, we typically self-justify with success. And I'm gonna say a few things that I've said before in here, and I'm not gonna apologize for that because I think it's super important. We typically self-justify with success. And for a lot of you, that's like occupational success. That's when you, when you get your value, it's because, you know, I started a business and it's real successful. Or I'm a hard worker and people know that they can rely on me and that's who I am. Like I'm an expert at this field at work. And when people have questions, they come to me here. Or maybe it's not, for some of, you, for some of us, it's not occupational. It could be some other sort of like success, you know, like, I'm just an unbelievable cook, or I'm an unbelievable gardener, or whatever it is that your success is. I'm really good at tennis, or whatever it is. And you might not even realize you're doing this, but you get your sense of purpose and meaning from this. You look at yourself in the mirror, it's the first thing you think of is, well, at least I have this going for me, right? Sometimes it's, sometimes it's, uh, well, I, I've been struggling with this lately. Sometimes it's like children's success. Sometimes it's, um, you know, uh, my kids are good at music or my kids are good at sports or my kids are good at academics or my kid has, you know, went out into the world and he or she has made a, a successful business of whatever they've been doing. And I get this sense of like, okay, I've done a good job. Okay, I have value. I have purpose and meaning in this world. Uh, sometimes it's like that. Um, I, was, I was talking with uh, Cheryl, our office manager this week, about a mutual friend of ours who has lived this unbelievable life uh, which, which involves like bailing out of a B-24 over Germany and breaking his ankle on the horizontal stabilizer and being captured and escaping and all those sorts of things. 
He has no military honors up on the wall of his house right now. He has his grandson's college diploma. Now, I'm not, I'm not, we're going to get to this. I'm not saying that's bad at all. The temptation, though, is for us to say, you know, I've sired this wonderful family, and that gives me purpose and meaning. And we get to completely guard against it. I was listening to a sermon this past week by Tim Keller where it wasn't about this text or about this topic even. It's actually a sermon on the prodigal son. But he, uh, he brought up this example, which I thought was really spot on. Did you guys, uh, do you guys remember the uh, movie Chariots of Fire about you know, the, uh, the British runners in the Olympics? This is 1930s, 1920s maybe. And one of the runners, Harold Abrahams, a very famous uh, runner in British track and field history, uh, uh, completely devoted to his craft. And he says at one point, he says this line, he's explaining at the Olympics, like his motivation, and he says this, I'll quote this to you. He says, okay, here I am at the Olympics, and now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. See what he's saying? I have once every four years, I have this moment where I stand before that track and I kneel down and I wait for the starter's gun. He's, uh, 100 meters was his event. And I have 10 seconds to just, he actually uses in the movie, he uses the word justify my existence. I have 10 seconds with which to prove to myself and to everybody else that I have value and I'm worth being here. Now, you guys probably aren't that dramatic. And most of you don't have, most of you, your thing that you get your self-justification from doesn't just pop up once every four years. But we all have these things that we think, I have to do this or I don't have value, I don't have worth. And what the gospel is saying here is, no, that's not true. None of those things can carry that weight. You can run and you can win the race, but you're going to get old and you're going to lose one sometime. Your kids, maybe, maybe your kids are like go to, go to school and they're, you know, just really scholarly and they get great grades and you're like, okay, I did a good job. You know, somebody else is getting better grades than them. Somebody else is using those grades to get a better job than them. So, you know, I, I, I use a lot of these examples before. So, but maybe your thing is like, I'm the witty guy. I'm the funny guy. Well, at some point, you're going to say something witty or funny, and it's just going to go over people's heads, or they're not going to laugh. Or somebody else is going to say something more witty than you and laugh harder at the thing that you laughed at. Or you're going to be like, you know what, I'm the expert in this field. And somebody else is going to go to somebody else who you know doesn't know as much as you and ask them, and you're going to be crushed because you got, I, we, I do this too, we get our sense of self-worth and identity. We justify ourselves with the works of the law, with something else that's just us. And what the gospel is saying here is you don't need to do that because you've already been justified by Jesus Christ. God looks at you and says you have infinite value already. You don't need to find it in anything else, even good things. Okay, that's, that's just good Reformation Day stuff, I think, right there. Now, let's talk in this text. There's three ways. How is that going to, that's, okay, I want you to believe that, right? How is that going to look in our everyday lives? How is that going to work itself out? There's three things that this text points out, that, being, that living a life where we bask in God's justification of us in Jesus Christ, there's three ways this looks, okay? There's a death, there's a life, and there's a love. There's a death and a life and a love. So first of all, the death, and basically the death principle is this. You're going to have to die. You're going to have to die to your old self-justifications. All the things that you once held dear, that you once pinned your existence upon, are going to have to go. That's what Paul says to Peter. He says this in verse uh, 19. For Peter, through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. You have to die to this, Peter. It's going to have to, 
you're going to have to kill it. Here's what he, it's a fancy way of saying this. Either you're going to have to kill your self-justification. Either you're going to have to figure out a way for your self-justifications to die, or it's going to kill you, right? I mean, you can give up cigarette smoking, but you're just going to have to pick up eating chocolate to get it. You can give up eating chocolate, but you're just going to replace it with working out. You can give up working out, but you're just going to have to replace it with, you know, mindfulness or meditation or whatever it is. And you can keep on doing this. You can keep on picking self-justifications, things that give you worth, but they'll never, ever carry the weight of what you're trying to put on them. They will never, ever give you the value that you're looking for because there'll always be somebody who's better. There'll always be moments when you're not stroked for what you think you're good at. It has to die. It's going to have to be killed. I was listening to a podcast recently where there was a couple relatively intelligent people who were talking about a famous singer who committed suicide within the past couple decades. And one of them said, I just don't get it. Like, I don't get like how somebody who has all the things that we are all trying for, money, fame, and power, why you would end it all once you got all that. And I, I wanted to scream at my earbuds. I wanted to scream at my earbuds. Like, no, no, she actually got it. She, she didn't kill the self-justifications, and so the self-justifications killed her. I'm not trying to oversimplify suicide. I know that it's way more complicated than that. But, you, I mean, you, you hear stories about people, the stock market crashes, and so financial people kill themselves. Why? Because they just couldn't live without money? No, that's not true. It's because they could not live without everybody knowing, I'm financially successful. I'm a successful Wall, Wall Street broker. If you do not kill your self-justifications, they will kill you. I think the Buddhists are, are onto something a little bit, right? Our problem is that we desire too much. We want our kids to be so successful. We want people to like us and respect us and admire us so much. I mean, where the Buddhists get it wrong, though, is that you can't get rid of those desires. You, can't re you, you can replace them with other desires. Even the desire to not have a desire is itself a desire. You can't ever get rid of that. It has to die. It has to be killed. What Paul is telling Peter here is that it has been killed on the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. My good parenting is crucified with Christ. My fast running is crucified with Christ. Aaron Miller, the financially successful businessman, has been crucified with Christ. It does not exist anymore. God holds it of no value. It's gone. Now, hold, just stay with me. I'm not telling you that these things aren't important. I'm gonna get back to this in a second, okay? But it has, it has no value in the eyes of God as far as judging me and my standing before, but not just before God, but before myself and before you guys. My primary value comes flowing out of God, and all these other things have to die, okay? So uh, let me get back in just a second to the question of, so do our kids have no value, or does working hard have no value? No, hold on to that. There has to be, here's the second thing. There also, there's, there's a death, but there's also a life. The old justifications get killed on the cross, but a new justification comes to life. This is what Paul means when he says, the very famous verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I'm a dead person. All my justifications are dead but it's Christ who's living in me. I no longer have to earn your guys' favor by being a good father. I no longer have to be concerned with earning your guys' favor or respect or acceptance by being witty and smart and saying funny things. I no longer have to earn your guys' favor, period, because I already am alive in Jesus Christ. And I am dead, but I'm just walking around in Jesus Christ. And when God looks at Jesus Christ, he sees me. And when he looks at me, he sees Jesus Christ. And that's all the acceptance I could ever hope to need. I can let all the other things go because I have it in Jesus Christ. I was, um, 
So, but basically the principle is this. Old justifications have to die, but a new one has to arise. I was reading Shelby Foote's, uh, 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 one of the books of his trilogy on the Civil War, and he was talking about U, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, and he was describing, do you know the story of Ulysses S. Grant? He was describing him uh, as, a, as a man who was a failure in business, a failure in personal morals, a failure in money, a failure in everything in life except for marriage and war. Ulysses S. Grant was a complete failure. Alcoholic because he knew he was a failure and he was miserable with himself. And then the Civil War happened and he found his new life. He found his purpose. This is what Paul is saying is you have to find that. Now, but, but Civil War is not going to work, right? Because for five years he has meaning and purpose. But then the Civil War is over and he goes back to being kind of a failure. I mean, I know he got elected president. But even his presidency was marked by his, his inability to stop corruption in his own office. And even the presidency couldn't stop his slow physical degradation because of his addiction to alcohol. But for a brief moment, he found that new life. And so what? What Paul is saying is, he's not saying go to war. He's saying you need to find a new life. And that new life is Jesus Christ. Look, Jesus is completely accepted by God. Jesus is also on mission. And I'm just telling you that if you give up your old goals, you give up your old sense of worth, and you allow yourself to bask in who Jesus is and his mission in this world, the things that he has going on, the people he's trying to save, the hungry people he's trying to feed, the naked people he's trying to clothe, the prisoners he's trying to visit, if you embed yourself in that through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul is saying you will, you'll experience this justification. You will know what it's like to have worth. Not your worth, but the worth of this Jesus who's on his mission, and we are on mission with him. That's what justification by faith is, is this new sense of worth. Just, here's what I'm saying. Here's another way of saying it. We have turned, just, me and you, like Protestants, we've turned justification by faith into this little part of our life. I want to go to heaven when I die, so I need to trust Jesus. But as far as like my family life, my friend life, my money life, my business life, my sex life, I'm kind of, I have to get my own purpose and meaning. And what Paul is saying is that, no, 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 die, all of you. Come back to life, all of you, and get all of your purpose and meaning out of who you are in Jesus Christ. Now, how does this work? Does it mean you have to stop making money or stop raising your kids? No, because of the third thing. We get a death, we get a life, but we also get a love, right? Sit this way. Your justifications always happen in relationships. You can only ever self-justify in relationship with other people. You can only run the 100-meter sprint and get justified by it if you beat the other runners who are slower and there's a stands full of people who are like, holy cow, that guy's fast. That's the only way you can use running to get your justification. Right? You can only justify yourself through your business practices if you actually have a successful business and you're making money. You can only justify yourself through your child rearing if you post pictures of your kids on Facebook and all the other moms like it. You can only, your self-justifications can only happen by taking cues from other people around you that you have value. Does this make sense? Now, I know some of you are going to say, not me. I don't care what other people think about me. That's not true. Of course you do. Have you ever noticed that the people who say, I don't really care what other people think, they, they feel the need to tell you that they don't care what other people think about you. Do you know why they feel the need to tell you that? It's because they really want you to know that they don't care what you think about them. It's very important that you know what they think, that they don't care what you think about them. This is actually where all of us are at. It is impossible as a human being to not live in reference to other humans. 
even in this postmodern world where like individualism and I don't, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. It's just a lie. And the sooner that you come to grips with the fact that you actually do deeply care what other people think about you is the sooner that you'll get to the point where you can grapple with your own self-justifications, which you're taking from cues that other people give to you. Even if it's I'm the tough guy that everybody knows I don't care what they think about me. That is, is itself a self-justification. Self okay, well, here's Paul's point. Yes, you're gonna get justified by the cues you take from other people. But take your cue from Jesus. G give me one more angle in here. Do you, not, do you know why porn is so addictive? Do you know why people have affairs? Do you know why people are so obsessed with work success, they wake up in the night and they think, oh my word, did, did, I, did I not include that in the report? Oh, I, gotta get, I, I gotta get that fixed before somebody sees it. Do you know why people obsess with that? Because every single one of us deeply craves admiration, attraction, and respect from other human beings. We deeply and desperately crave it. This is why people will fake it with porn or with affairs. This is why people will invest them so much and I need people to think I'm respectful. I need people to be attracted. I need people to think I'm smart. I need people to be attracted to me. It consumes us. And now here's what, here, this is why Paul clues us in verse 20. Check this out again. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith in the Son of God, justification by faith, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is at the heart of justification by faith. And if you can get this, you can bask in your justification by faith in Christ. God in Jesus Christ, infinitely and absolutely and unconditionally and irrevocably is attracted to you. Unconditionally accepts you, no questions asked. Thrills over who you are. Takes deep, intense pleasure in your existence. Whether you're a bad father or a good father. Takes huge amounts of delight in watching you walk around. And the trick to living the justified by faith life is to bask in that love and think, I don't have to be a good father, I want to be a good father, but I don't have to be a good father because my heavenly father loves me, no questions asked. I don't have to be successful in business, I wanna be, but I don't have to be because I'm completely loved and adored and a, God is so attracted to me. He so much admires me. He so much loves me and accepts me, no questions asked. He knows everything about me and he still wants me more than anybody else in the world could possibly want me. Now, Tim Keller didn't do this illustration, but as soon as he said it in relationship to justification, I thought this. So here's Harold Abrahams, right? Like 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. That's classic self-justification. There's another character in that movie, the main character, some of you know Eric Liddell, Christian ministry, Christian missionary to China. He actually died in China. He explains his theory of running later on in the movie. It's completely opposite of Harold Abrahams. Remember, do you guys remember this part? His sister comes to him and says, hey, God called you to be a missionary to China. And I don't know why you're fooling around with this Olympic running stuff, but you're just wasting your time here. You're wasting your calling. And Eric Liddell says to her, as a direct quote, Eric Liddell says to her, yeah, you're right. God did call me to be a missionary, but God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Do you catch the difference there? Like, I've got to justify myself with this race versus I don't need to run this race for like winning. All I know is that when I run, I can feel God love me. I can feel that God made me fast. And so when I'm who God made me to be, I can feel his pleasure. That's why Paul says, who loved me and gave himself for me. You will not get justification by faith 
unless you fully grasp that I am loved and accepted by Jesus Christ. This will liberate you to be a great father, but not to justify yourself to do it. To be a great businessman, to be a great friend, to be a great gardener. Here's what I'm telling you. Like, go raise your kids. And when you do, feel God's pleasure for you. Go talk to your wife. Go on a walk with the neighbors. Go work in your garden. Go make a meal. Go play tennis. Go to work real hard and like crunch that report out and try and get it right. And when you do all those things, justification by faith in Jesus Christ means that you can do those knowing that you're completely accepted and loved. And every time you hit that tennis ball, every step you take with that friend, every time you take that sip of that beverage, God is loving every moment of it in Jesus Christ. That's justification by faith. All right, stand with me and pray, and then we'll have communion. Let's pray. God, even this week, even as I'm like thinking about Galatians 2 and exploring it and kind of getting lost in a maze of wonder at your love for me, I will confess, I'm not sure that I, I get all of this. Like, I'm so small and... Even in my tininess, I'm so wicked. I'm so self-absorbed. And even as I'm talking about trying to justify myself by sounding intelligent, I'm actually trying to justify myself by sounding intelligent in that sermon. And yet, you insist that you love me and have given yourself for me. And God, help me to, to, in my own mind, to realize that all those old justifications have been put to death. And now I am infinitely accepted by your son, Jesus Christ. Help our church, all of us, help us all to bask in that, that love that you have for us. Lord, in your mercy. Father, today is also a day, uh, All Saints Day, to remember uh, the saints who have gone before us and who are now worshiping, uh, yes, with you in glory, but also with us. We remember our parents and our grandparents who have passed on and our brothers and sisters and sometimes our children, our friends who are now gathered around your throne and with us simultaneously are worshiping your son Jesus, crying out, holy, holy, holy. And we long for the day when you will make us pure and one at heart with them. What we deeply long for is your son's return to raise them from the grave and to reunite us again. And we especially want to pray and remember today uh, Bob and Joyce Willoughby, who both passed away this year. And we want to thank you for their testimony and for their lives, uh, worshiping you in service to you, in service to this church. And uh, again, uh, long for the day when we can worship one more time with them in your presence, in their presence. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you have justified us, because you have said we have value and honor and acceptance and even admiration and attraction in your eyes because of your son, Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures 
and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, 